Well, sometimes getting started is the hardest part to get everything worked out. Every journey, whether it's long or it's short, has to begin somewhere. Every book, every story has an opening line, an opening sentence, and every sermon has an introductory statement. That is, except for this one, because I'm not quite there yet. So my name is Pastor Milo. I welcome you if you're watching for the first time, if you're coming back and listening to this in our archive, if you're a guest with us uh, here this morning. Uh, some of you have been here for more Sundays than I've been alive, so this isn't your first time uh, walking in here this morning. It isn't your first time looking at this text, but I'll tell you a little secret if you don't tell anyone. I had trouble getting started with this sermon this week. It's hard to get it off the ground, hard to get things moving. It took me a little while. It was a difficult task for me. Over uh, the New Year's Eve uh, break, we went to see my sister. Uh, my entire extended family came to St. Louis, and, and that's where she lives, and we all kind of came together. It was a place where we haven't been in a few years. Like every my family is the odd year that we get together, and so this was our year to get together, and we hadn't been together in a, in a couple of years. Uh, and so we, we had planned to just kind of come together. The kids are getting a little bit older. We thought that we would just get together. We're pretty worn out. Most of us had like an eight or a ten hour drive or longer to get there. And so really the, the idea for the week was let's just arrive, let's get there. And then adults, we're going to sit around and drink coffee and then let the kids just do whatever it is that they're going to do. We might go to the zoo for a day. Uh, we might do movies one night. But that's about it. We're not going to do anything. We didn't really have a plan at all. That is until my brother-in-law arrived. Now, he doesn't roll quite like the rest of us do. My brother-in-law is a different type of person. He's got a really big personality, and so when he walks into the room, he makes sure that everybody knows that he has just arrived in the room. And so he's got this huge personality, and he has a really big heart as well. And so when he arrived, he had a different plan. He, he, even though we had all said there wasn't going to be any gifts exchanged this year because we had all come through our own family Christmases, we, our kids had plenty of gifts. We didn't need to do any more. We didn't need to uh, put that pressure on one another. But he came through the door with his arms full of gifts to be able to hand out to everyone, an armful of boxes for every one of the nieces, every one of the nephews. And he said this, we are going to build some rockets Oh my goodness. We'll work on them all week. We'll shoot them off on the last day. And the cousins, they squealed and they ran around in delight. It was one of those houses where the kitchen and the living room, there's like the central hub of the house, but there's room for just to run in circles around uh, the living room and around the kitchen and around the dining room. They just ran around back and forth. They had these boxes with a picture of a rocket on the side of it and just like whooshing it all around the house. This was going to be amazing. My, my brother-in-law divided up all of the, the kids into teams. He paired the younger cousins who couldn't read yet with the older cousins who could read, and they would understand what it is that had to be done to put together. He handed out markers. He handed out stickers so that everyone would be able to decorate uh, their rockets so that we would know the difference. We told everyone that there would be a design competition for the best design, and then he had batteries that he gave to each team for the launch modules so that they would each have a battery. And then he sat down. And that's when we realized, the rest of us parents in the room, we realized what an awful, dirty trick had just been played on the rest of us. You see, my brother-in-law, John Mark is his name, isn't exactly what one might call a rocket scientist. 
He wasn't working on any of these things. The weather report for the entire week was an absolute torrential downpour. Every day, all day, the entire time that we were there. He didn't have any idea as to where we would launch these rockets off. He had no idea, hadn't done any research on that. He had no idea where we could build these rockets without losing all the parts, without all the little kids eating them whole. He didn't have any ideas for that. He didn't have any ideas how a group of mostly 10 and younger children would be able to build the fairly intricate flying machines that he had decided to get them because he didn't get the beginner models because we wouldn't need to do that. He got the ones that were already written on the side of the box, 12 and older. He handed out all the materials and then he sat down and he said, my work is done here. And so my brother-in-law slept on the couch upstairs for three days. Two or three of us adults, less than willing, now had to assemble all the pieces and all the parts that went into the next generation's Apollo mission modules that were going to be sent into orbit. We're on the back porch. It's cold, it's rainy, it's misty. We had to go out on different breaks and then try to figure out how to get things to dry with a hair dryer in the rain and not electrocute ourselves. It was miserable. And so what we ended up doing, after someone found that there was an old baseball diamond within a 20-minute drive away from where we were, that we might be able, if we got lucky, because of Google Maps showed maybe there was some room where there weren't any power lines or homes or expensive cars in a parking lot that we would crash land into and, and have to pay the rest of our mortgage off to be able to pay for that vehicle. We, we trudged across this field in two inches of water to the only spot on the field that seemed like it was a above the surface of the ocean, and so we got to the center of what used to be the baseball diamond uh, pitching mound, and so there was where we decided to set up the rockets. I had a terrible attitude, if you're not picking up on that. I was wet. I was chilled. I hadn't worn enough layers. I couldn't feel my fingertips, not because it was cold, but because I had so much model glue on my fingers that my fingertips would now be altered for the rest of time. And after all of this, guess who is going to press the launch codes to send all the rockets into the sky? And guess who is going to be the hero for all of the cousins to come and wrap their loving arms around? My brother-in-law, again. I was definitely beginning to wish ill will towards John Mark. There's no question about that. I was not in a good place. Five, four, three, oops. He dropped the key to the launch module on the ground, and so now he had to find it on the ground. And so because of that, I immediately got out my phone and began to video the travesty that this was. I'm filming. I want to document this man's failure. I want to be able to remember this moment. I want to see him squirm. It's disgusting what's inside of a man's heart, isn't it? Five, four, three, two, one, and then a miracle 
This rocket shot straight up into the sky, out of sight, perfectly straight, no problems whatsoever. It went way, way up, as far as you could possibly see. You see this little poof, and then the, the parachute came out. It's unbelievable. The parachute came out, and it circled the sky, and while our kids ran back and forth around, and it came down, and it floated through these trees. It didn't catch a single tree, and the kids caught this thing before it even touched the ground. The rocket literally never touched the ground. It was a perfect launch. Unbelievable. Just like John Mark had described it, it's going to be great. And it was. It was absolutely incredible. That moment is cemented now in my mind as one of the most memorable, exciting, fun things that we have ever done as an extended family. The perfect day, the perfect way to cap off a perfect week of being together, of hanging out. In his mind, this was the whole reason that we had together. It would have never happened if it wasn't for my brother-in-law, John Mark. So John Mark, if you watch this, he won't watch this. But if you were to watch this, forgive me for my bad attitude. You see, getting started is always the hardest part. But knowing where you're going makes it easy. Getting started is always the hardest part, but knowing where you're going makes it easy. You see, my brother-in-law, when he was packing all the things up to go to St. Louis, he had a clear picture of where he was going and what we were going to be doing, that the launch would look like from the moment he arrived there in St. Louis. In our minds, we were just hanging out. In his mind, we were there to be the launch crew. We were there for a distinct purpose. We were there going to spend the entire week. But the rest of us now had to get along and come around to the idea that he had placed in front of us. In the Gospel of Matthew, we are 11 weeks into a sermon series, and we've been looking at the life, we've been looking at the ministry of Jesus Christ. And upon the confession of his faith, on Peter's confession, Jesus has made it clear to the disciples that he indeed is the Messiah, he is the Christ, he is the one that they are waiting for, the Savior of the world. And as such, there was a very direct and a very distinct purpose for him being here and for his life. We read this text a few weeks ago, many weeks ago now actually. This is from Matthew chapter 16 and 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the he would be raised to life. Jesus had given them a very, very clear picture of where he was going. He was going to Jerusalem. My brother-in-law had given us a very clear picture of where he thought we should be going for our week together. Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem. Jesus says, I'm going to the cross. Jesus if his disciples are going to be faithful to him, they were going to need to pick up their own cross and follow him as well. Take up your cross and follow me, is what Jesus says. And so, yes, this sermon was hard to get off the ground this week, hard to get started on, because I lost focus to where this text is going. Getting started is always the hardest part, but knowing where you're going makes it easy. I don't know what your week looked like this week. But I had a tough week. It was one of those weeks that was physically demanding. 
early in the week, I had a positive COVID test. Many of you have gone through this, walked through this. I've been two years without having this scenario. So I will not be in the foyer on the way out this morning to greet you on the way out. You're welcome. So compared to many people, I didn't get that sick. I haven't dealt with that many symptoms, but I was tired and, and my, my brain was a little bit foggy this week. It was an emotional demanding week as well because of uh, some conversations that had to happen. Because of this positive test, I had to have a lot of these conversations over the phone and over Zoom and some other things. Or there's a few times I had to come in and deal with some ministry things that were going on uh, where I got put in the, the COVID safe corner where I was double masked and hiding in the corner as far as I could away from people in order to have those conversations. God was faithful in them. Why would I expect anything else? But God was faithful as He always is. But it's been an emotional week. It's been a physically demanding week. Maybe you can relate. Maybe that's the type of week that you had. And so because of that, what happens, what has happened to me and what's probably happened to many of you is that my focus all of a sudden starts to be on me. And the world revolves around me and my concerns and my hurts and my hang-ups because I'm the one who is feeling sick or I'm the one who has my wants and my desires that need to be met. I'm wallowing in my own little pity party. Maybe this is you. Maybe you'll just, thanks for laughing, that was good. At least maybe there's someone else in the room who's willing to not make me take all of this. But I was missing the big picture, and it was sitting right here in front of me the whole time. It's in the title of the sermon series. It's in the center of the stage behind me. It's the distinctive symbol of Christianity as a whole. It is the cross. Jesus is going to the cross. I didn't come to this realization on my own either. I was walking through. The points of my sermon on Friday with my wife, I do that fairly often most weeks. And she said, aren't you missing the main point? That's always good to hear when you're prepping your sermon. That's why God gave me a wife, that's right. Aren't you missing the main point? I mean, you've got some good stuff here, some good ideas here, but don't you want the main point for people to hear? The main thing that people need to hear about and understand, isn't it the cross? And she's right. It's the cross. Jesus is going to the cross. And so this passage, if you miss that, in the middle of the other things that are going on here, and thank you, Stephen, he just read our way through that, but if you miss the point that Jesus is giving all of this instruction while he's headed to the cross, you've missed the whole point. Jenny Evelyn Hussey was a, a Quaker Puritan. She lived approximately 100 years ago. She's a prolific writer who had her poetry published even as a teenager, but she rarely traveled. She rarely gained any notoriety or popularity for her work. Historians believe that this was primarily because she had made a commitment. She had made a commitment when she spent most of her entire adult life caring for her special needs sister in seclusion and in solitude. Even as a Quaker, she was even particularly secluded. But she penned these words in 1921 of a hymn called, Lead Me to Calvary. King of my life, I crown thee now. 
thine shall the glory be. Lest I forget thy thorn-crowned brow, lead me to Calvary. Lest I forget Gethsemane, lest I forget thine agony, lest I forget thy love for me, lead me to Calvary. Lest I forget. My sermon this week was hard to get off the ground this week because I forgot. Because I forgot. The disciples, they were having a hard time with what Jesus was teaching here because they also forgot. They forgot where Jesus was leading them. He was leading them to Calvary. Many chapters have passed since Matthew chapter 16. This sermon series is now week 12 in this sermon series. Much has been shared, and people from all over the region have come. Hundreds, thousands of people have come to listen to Jesus speak. And even 2,000 years later, it takes us 12 weeks to unpack all of what He has said. But if you miss the point, you've missed the point. Jesus is leading them to Jerusalem. Jesus is leading them to the cross. Jesus, there was no other reason for them to be meeting together. For Jesus, there was no other reason for them to be gathering the crowds. For Jesus, the purpose had always been clear. It had always been about the cross, lest we forget. Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 17, if you haven't made your way there already, says this. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Jesus gets very specific here. Jesus now names the chief priests and the scribes. Those are the religious leaders of the day, of the Jewish people. He's naming them that they will be the ones that are going to condemn him to death. Then, as these Jewish leaders will condemn him to death, but they will hand him over to the Gentiles, that is the Roman authorities, and they will be the ones who will punish him and kill him and crucify him. Then, Jesus says, he will rise again on the third day. Lest we forget, Jesus came as a sacrifice. Lest we forget, Jesus came to sacrifice. Jesus knows what is coming, and He is willingly walking directly into the line of fire. He is trying to prepare His disciples for what will happen. He will be betrayed, He will be condemned, He will be punished, and He will be killed. John the Baptist announces Jesus' arrival into public ministry by saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Jesus was offering himself as a sacrifice, the spotless Lamb, and he was doing it. He's the perfect sacrifice. He is the willing sacrifice. And each time that Jesus predicts his death, he gives a little bit more information to those disciples about how it would happen. When you put all this together, you start to realize the horrific nature in which Jesus was predicting with such detail exactly what would be happening. As we know now, 2,000 years later, we see that it happened exactly as Christ predicted. As His 12 disciples are, are circled around Him as He gathers them together, they have no idea 
what he's talking about. And yet, in the middle of this horrific prediction that he's giving, something quite human is happening in that huddle, something that would happen if he gathered you and I and ten other people around him as well. These men still have issues. These men still have more lessons to learn. Friend, church, you still have issues. You still have lessons that you need to learn as well. Verse 20, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, she asked a favor of him. She's offering him the greatest level of respect that she could. She is bowing before him, and he says, what is it that you want? She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at the left in your kingdom. Now, we actually see this talked about in Scripture multiple times. We've actually covered something similar happening early in the Gospel of Matthew to the point that we actually believe as we're looking at this, looking at these passages, that this is not the first time that these young men have asked for where their position and glory will be in the kingdom of God. Even in the middle of Jesus predicting His own death, the disciples are thinking about who? Themselves how they might be great in the kingdom of God. Jesus confronts the issue. He redirects their focus back to where His focus is, back to Jerusalem, back to the cross. Verse 22, He says, You don't know what it is that you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And they answered, We can! Hooray! Lest we forget, Jesus came to be sacrificed. Lest we forget, Jesus came to suffer, to suffer. There's a lot that we can unpack from this passage. There's some of it that seems comical almost as we look at it. We start with James and John. They're the sons of Zebedee. Jesus nicknames them the sons of thunder. There's nothing very thunderous about happening in this passage. But they want a place of prominence in the kingdom of Jesus, and apparently their mother wanted it for them as well. Not many of us would allow, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want my mama asking me, asking for me to have something on my behalf as a grown adult, but they didn't seem to mind. Mrs. Zebedee, whoever she is, she kneels before Jesus, she shows some respect, and she asked if, she, if her sons could have a place of honor in his kingdom. She had this idea of Jesus sitting on a throne and one brother sitting on one side of him and the other brother sitting on the other side of him there at the throne. They've missed it. They've missed the point. Jesus just told him, he said, I am going to Jerusalem. I am going to the cross. And they said, but you're going to be the king. They missed it. I love how we read in Matthew's Gospel that Jesus doesn't even answer the mother, Mrs. Zebedee. She doesn't get an answer at all. Jesus addresses his answer directly to James and John. He answers for them because they're the ones who really want to know. We know that there are people who are gathered around. The rest of the disciples are watching all of this and watching what's going on with anticipation, trying to figure out how Jesus is going to act or respond. Jesus doesn't even answer the request, not really. In fact, Jesus responds, as he often does, with a question of his own. 
he asked them, are you able to drink of the cup that I am about to drink? Lest we forget, Jesus came to suffer. Are you able to drink of this cup? Jesus is making reference to an Old Testament picture given to us by the prophet Jeremiah. Now this prophet Jeremiah, he'd endured tremendous suffering during his life on God's behalf. He was speaking the words of God to the people of Judah that they needed to repent. And again and again and again, he would tell them, you must repent. And again and again, they said, nah, I'm not worried about it. It's not that big of a deal. And they didn't want to hear it. To the point that they got sick and tired of hearing Jeremiah tell them what God was saying. And so they put uh, ropes around his arms and lowered him down to an abandoned well in the middle of the city. A well that was dry in the sense that there was no water in it anymore. And there in the pit, as he sinks down deeper and deeper, waist deep in the mud, left there and still claiming that he knows that God wants them to repent, God gives the word to Jeremiah. As he is enduring this suffering, as he enduring his circumstances and all that is going on, God tells Jeremiah, you will not have to drink of this cup, is what he tells him. God tells him that there would be this cup, a cup that was filled with wine of God's wrath. And that all the nations who didn't bow to him, all the nations that didn't give him the proper glory, they would have to drink of this cup. And that this cup of wrath would make them stagger. It would make them go mad because it would represent that the sword that he would send among them to destroy them all. Think, if you would, about about some terrible tasting medicine that you had to drink as a kid. My kids complain about medicine that they have to drink, and I don't understand why. It's like berry flavored and stuff like that. I'm going the whole, like, when I was a kid, yes, I'm going there. Do you remember how awful it tastes? Do you remember having to plug your nose and everything else? Like it was terrible. Kids these days with their berry-flavored cough syrup. The cup of nasty, vile medicine was what was happening here. Jesus says, are you prepared to drink the cup of wrath? God is going to pour out his wrath on the sin of humankind. It's more dark, it's more destructive than anything that we could imagine. And Jesus says, I'm about to consume that cup. And the disciples, of course, have no idea what it is that he's talking about. And so they nod their head and said, yes, yes, yes. We are able. We are able. Jesus is extremely patient. He's extremely compassionate here. He doesn't correct them and say, can you drink from this cup, James? Can you drink from this cup, John? Sons of Zebedee, you have no idea what it is you are talking about. You are being selfish. You are being self-centered. You are being foolish. No, this is how he responds. Verse 23, Jesus says to him, you indeed will drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to, to those for whom have already been prepared By the heavenly Father. They were going to get a taste of this cup. They would not have to consume the cup. Jesus was going to do that on the cross. He was going to take on the sins of the world. But they were going to get a taste of it. 
James was the first martyr recorded in Scripture. In Acts chapter 12, we find that the chapter opens that we find Herod the king had laid violent hands on the early church and any who would belong to the early church, and that he had killed James, Herod had, with the edge of the sword. John, we believe, lived longer than any of the other apostles. We find that he died an old man in his bed. But he often drank of this bitter cup. He went through tremendous pain, tremendous suffering. In the book of Revelation that he writes, Revelation chapter 1, it tells us the reason why he writes the book. So it would reveal the beauty and the glory of God that is in Jesus Christ. I want to reveal to you Jesus Christ. He is writing this, he says, while I am exiled on the island of Patmos. Christian historians believe that he was, at some point, they attempted to boil him alive in oil before sending him there. He got his taste of the cup. And then the rest of the disciples, as they're hearing this, they get angry. They say, we want a taste of the cup. Verse 24. When the ten heard about this, this being that the brothers had again asked about this place of prominence, when the brothers heard about when the ten others heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. This fits right into this passage, as you would expect, in chapter 20 here in line with what Jesus just shared, the parable that Pastor Brian taught last week and walked through, uh, the parable of the vineyard workers that were in chapters 1 through 16. It is God's right, it is God's right to show whomever He wants to show them grace and show them favor and show them reward, whomever He wants to reward, because He is the landowner, He is the King. And yet they're going to squabble amongst themselves. The disciples were surely not angry just because the brothers were being selfish. They were angry because they also wanted a peace. They also wanted to be prominent. This was not righteous indignation. This was jealousy. This was envious indignation. Jesus knew what was going on throughout all of this and all that is happening around him as he always does. And he patiently and calmly sought to teach them all. A lesson. Remember, Jesus could have said, well, what's wrong with you all? Didn't you hear what I've been teaching? Haven't you been listening to my sermons? Didn't you hear me say that I was going to suffer, that I was going to die? Now, you are all talking about who's going to be great in the kingdom, the most prominent place in my kingdom. However, that's not what Jesus did. That's not what he said. That was not his method in this moment. Jesus is patient, and Jesus is loving with his disciples, just like he is with all of his children. Jesus makes his point by showing a contrast of how people seek greatness in the world and how we are to seek greatness in the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 25. Jesus called them together and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, they will lord their rulership over them and that the high officials will exercise authority over them. Verse 26, underline this, mark this, circle it, highlight it, whatever you need to do. Not so with you, he says. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. This is the third time in two chapters he has given some form of the first will be last and the last will be first. He says the first must become a slave. Verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve. 
Jesus talks about these earthly rulers seeking to show their greatness by, by acting, behaving as tyrants, as exercising power over others. They seek more prestige, more power, more influence, more bravado. That's still the case with many earthly leaders, is it not? Jesus said these powerful to his apostles. And he speaks it to us through the power of the Holy Spirit as well. It must not be so among you. Lest we forget, Jesus came to serve. Jesus came to serve. This was not something that the Son of God did to fill some of his spare time. This was not something he did to demonstrate uh, his, his hobbies for all to see. No, this was something he did to demonstrate what it looks like to actually live a life out in front of the world so that we would be able to see Jesus moved into our neighborhoods, the first chapter of John tells us, so that he could demonstrate for us what a life of purpose, a life dedicated to giving to all the praise and all the honor and all the glory to God in every moment of that life. The God of the universe who deserves all the glory and all the honor and all the praise that we can muster to give to him. He demonstrates that for us. And true followers of Christ need to understand this and understand it well. Jesus did not come to be served by others. Jesus came to serve others. Friends, church family, not to be like the world. It must not be like that among us. We are not to seek power or prestige or influence. What is it that we are to seek? I'm glad you asked. Jesus says if we want to be great, we must be servants. If we want to be first, we must first be like a slave. We must lower ourselves and put the needs of others before ourselves. Greatness in the kingdom of God, he repeats this theme again, comes through humility and service. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and what? And to give His life as a ransom for many, lest we forget. Jesus came to die. It's always been about the cross. How would He demonstrate His commitment to servanthood? He would do so by giving His life a ransom for Many. What is a ransom? You know what it is. It's a, it's a price that is paid to buy something or someone back. We are slaves to sin and the price that must be paid to buy us back, to buy you back from the clutches of death and the clutches of sin is death itself. Jesus paid that price. Jesus paid the ransom for us when He died. Jesus willingly laid down his life. He didn't have to. He could have wiped out all of those bad leaders, all the betrayers, all the evil religious people of the day, all the Romans. But instead, he took the posture of a servant, laid himself down, displayed himself in this ultimate act of humility, of sacrificing himself, laying down his life because Jesus came to die. As the band comes forward this morning and as we close, the men that are standing in that circle listening to what Jesus is doing, and they would be standing there again watching him give his life on the cross for your sins and for mine. Peter, 
It all began with Peter's confession here in Matthew chapter 16. So turn over, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. He was getting grouped in with the rest of the disciples. He was getting sucked in as well. He was telling him, we've left everything for you, Jesus. What is there for us? Until Jesus tells him, Peter, followers of Christ, this shall not be so among you. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. How and why? Because by his wounds you have been healed. Here's the bottom line. Jesus came so that we would die to sin and live for him. It was always about the cross, friends. Jesus was always going to Jerusalem. He was always going for this purpose. Go back to verse 21. To this you were called, he tells us. Peter is saying, this is what I've been told. This is what I have learned. This is what I want you to learn from this moment. To this you were called, church. This you were called, friends, because Christ suffered for you. He left you this example that you should do what? Follow in his steps to be like Jesus. To be like Jesus, we must, you must, suffer and serve. To be like Jesus, to follow in His to follow His path. He told you already, pick up your cross and follow me, He says. You will suffer and you will serve if you decide to follow Jesus. To be like Jesus, we must die to sin and live for Him. Getting started is always the hardest part. But knowing where you're going makes it easy. When it comes to the cross, when it comes to dying and living, do you know where you're going? Do you know where you're going? If you get in a car, you drive out to the street, you make the wrong turn, you get hit by another car, you die today. Do you know where you're going? Because knowing where you're going makes it easy when you start leaving this room today. Knowing where you're going makes it easy because you know that Jesus gave himself for you. Knowing the big picture changes everything. Do you know how? Or by what merits you might inherit the kingdom of heaven. If you're starting to put a tally list in your mind. If you're starting to think of where you might be positioned in glory. You're missing it, friends. You're missing it, church family. It's all about the cross. We have nothing without lest we forget. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Dear Lord, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you repeat yourself multiple times so that we can hear it again and again and again and again. Lord, we can get so self-absorbed in our own problems and our own situations that we forget the sacrifice, the suffering, the service that you've demonstrated right before us the ultimate act of humility 
and giving your life for us. If there's someone here this morning, if you are here this morning and you have not yet given your life to Christ, what that actually means is grabbing a hold of the, the eternal gift that's been given you because Jesus has given His life for you. If you've got to grab a hold of that, friend. Your eternal security is at stake. If you've not done that yet, would you admit that you are a sinner? You cannot save yourself. Believe that Jesus, when He says that He has paid your ransom, that it has been paid in full, confessing that, and knowing and believing that He is faithful and just, that eternal Father is strong to save, able to do something about it. Would you grab a hold of that this morning? If you are here, you've accepted Christ years and years and years ago, and yet you've lost sight of the cross, and you've got a bad attitude, You've got your arms folded and you're grumpy and you're stomping around because you've forgotten the sacrifice that has been made. Would you repent of that here this morning? God, let me see the cross lest we forget. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we believe you've been at work here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.